Hiria Cameron and Kat Poi are sisters, and they are Nuku 40 and 41. Of Tainui Tiarua and Tongan Whakapapa, the pair both work in racial equity education, building people's skill, capacity and knowledge to engage, sustain and deepen conversation about race. The mahi contributes to humanity by achieving liberation and equity, while also empowering people to be healthy and to thrive in their identities. They do this through one courageous conversation at a time. In this episode, we talk about black lives and white skin. We try and talk about their youth as world trampoline champions, but the discussion quickly returns to decolonization and indigenization, about reshaping racial consciousness, and about what it means to be Māori enough. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Kia ora, Hiria and Kat. Kia ora. Kia ora. How are you both? Yeah, great. Kia Excited. Yep, I'm awesome as well. Feeling really good. So we have two wahine in the Nukufari today because these two wahine are sisters <laughs> and we couldn't do one without the other and we couldn't do them separately because <laughs> their kōrero and their, their mahi and their lives are so intertwined. And so, um, Nuku 40 and 41. Whoop, whoop. And uh, it's quite significant that Hiria is Nuku 40 because this year you celebrated your 40th uh, cycle around the sun. I did, I did. And it happened at the same time as Matariki. So, birthed into a new decade and a new year at the same time. And it's been a bit of a doozy and I'm loving it. Kapai. Now, Korua, you are um, not twins. <laughs> How many years apart are you? We're 20 months apart. 20 months. Go mama. Okay. <laughs> um, where were you, where were you um, raised, brought up? What was your childhood like together? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I was born on the lands of the Bundjalung people in a place um, known as Mawulumba, in a state commonly known as New South Wales in Australia. Uh, my father was playing semi-professional rugby league and um, my mother had me in Mawulumba. And I was born on the lands of the Wiradjuri people in country New South Wales, a little town called Leeton. Um, and then... We came home when I was about four, Kat was about two, and grew up uh, in Auckland and then bounced back across the ditch a couple of times. Most of our um, growing up was done in central Auckland. Are you two the only siblings in your whanau or do you have more? Well, the way that I craft it is that there are six siblings and from a Te Ao Pākehā perspective, some people would say that uh, Hedia is my only full biological sister. Uh, there are six tamariki. My father had um, 
three sets of two children. We're the middle children. <laughs> so from a Tiao Māori perspective, there are six of you. <laughs> Correct. We don't do halves or steps or Correct. any of that. Correct. <laughs> and what was your upbringing like? Well, uh, when we got back from Australia, we settled in Avondale to begin with, and uh, we were financially impoverished, and our mother was in a relationally impoverished marriage to my father. She is a mana wahine Māori, and the extent of those two types of impoverishment were um, not known to me to their fullest extent when I was growing up. Um, we moved from Avondale to Mount Albert, uh, where my childhood was a really happy one. Um, and it was a hugely disconscious or unconscious one. Uh, I, what I mean by that is... Uh, despite me living a happy um, childhood, uh, I was never affirmed in who I was as a um, kōtero, as a Māori girl in central Auckland. Actually, being Māori was something that happened in the weekends when mum took us back to our papakainga Rahui Pōkika Wahi Pā. It was during those moments that... Uh, I knew that being Māori in Huntley meant something to, different to being Māori in Mount Albert. I was much more aware um, of the challenges uh, our family was going through. Um, I remember quite a volatile, um, violent, uh, abusive um, environment that we grew up in and uh, not necessarily in a physical sense but um, yeah emotionally it was uh, it was tough at times often um, I always felt affirmed in being a Māori girl I always proudly identified as Māori and while I recognised that there was a difference between being Māori and Huntley um, compared to being Māori uh, in Auckland. I was nonetheless just deeply proud and clung to um, my Māori identity, whatever that meant mm -hmm. in a kind of urban, unconscious way. Now, I, I had asked you both... Um, before this corridor to describe or to let me know what your ethnic uh, background was or what how you describe it. In Hiria, you wrote mana whenua, mana moana. Aye. What, um, what does that mean for you? So just this year, I've been on a bit of a path to reconnect with um, our Tongan ancestry and have been part of um, a program called Mana Moana, a leadership program for Pacific Island leaders um, run by Leadership New Zealand. And for me, um, the way that it was explained is just like Mana Whenua refers to people of this land, Mana Moana refers to being people of the biggest Moana, of Moana Nui Kiwa. And um, even though we're located in Aotearoa, um, 
our waters, our moana, ties us and connects us um, across all the islands. So, yeah, it just grounds me mm. in, in the South Pacific. Did you both have much experience or knowledge of your Tongan whakapapa growing up? Carl, um, our dad's family are Irish Tongan and uh, many of... I don't have many memories at all of connecting with our Tongan um, whānau. Uh, our nana was um, very proper mm. and our aunties mm. were also, you know, we were held to kind of white standards of manners and behaviour and that's kind of how we rolled. Irish Catholic whānau. Our nana as well was deeply involved in the Tongan community and she was the first uh, Tongan translator in the courts um, in the 70s Um, and she was a very well-respected Tongan woman in Auckland. Uh, Our father was the oldest of nine children and I don't know what happened but he missed out on the beautiful gifts that my nana offered in terms of cultural knowledge and therefore that wasn't passed on to us. Mm. So my memories of Tongan things were around really superficial things like food and clothing, very superficial. Symbolic tapa, you know, just real kind of, yeah, Mm. surface. You both work in essentially the same mahi um, today mm-hmm. and it's it's mahi that can be quite confronting because it's mahi around race and conversations around race. Can you describe what it is you do? The way I describe it is that um, I call myself a racial equity educator and I teach people how to have conversations about race mm-hmm. that are productive and generative <laughs> Mm. That's the goal. What I... I do what she does as well. Um, I guess what's interesting about us is that we work together, but we also live next door to one another. So... And what you describe as the village, I might add. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So um, even before we get to work, uh, the setup that I have with my sister is one where we are trying to interrupt... Uh, the tendency for uh, colonising ways of living in terms of everyone has their own house and their own bit of patch of land and uh, we do our things by ourselves. We're trying to interrupt all of that to emulate ancestral ways of living, albeit in a contemporary urban environment. And so um, in our work... uh, that whole um, notion of interruption and who I am as a racial equity educator is to interrupt how um, I know myself as a racial being and how others know themselves as racial beings. Uh, So the way that I describe what it is that I do emulates what my sister just said, but also it's about um, interrupting those taken for granted understandings that uh, we each espouse of ourselves. Mm. And what led you to this, May? Because it's... Before I met you both, or before I heard of you both, 
I didn't know that this sort of mahi existed. Where did it come from in terms of your consciousness and what led you specifically to it? Uh, in terms of the mahi itself, we were both working at Unitech and um, the equity and diversity manager there, um, he's got a doctorate, he's done race relations, everything to do with kind of cultural competency, whatever it's been called over the years for about 25 years. Mm. He um, came across the program in 2009. It was a book written by an African-American man and brought the program to Unitech. And at that time, he um, uh, invited a whole bunch of people to kind of... uh, get involved, learn a bit more about it. He brought um, the author over, Glenn Singleton, and we experienced the work and he was trying to create a movement. And the movement was one of racial consciousness um, and it started with ourselves. And so my first touch of the work, I was brought into an awareness of how much of my life I'd spent mimicking white standards Mm. and I had this deeply painful kind of you know moment of realization and it touched my soul and I just knew that I couldn't ever put it down and I needed to figure out what that was about and I needed to figure out how not to do that anymore and who I was underneath all of that. And is that something that you come across with a lot of people? I mean I guess you um, experiencing that in yourself and realising that in yourself is not something that a lot of people would even think to begin to look for within themselves. And so while we understand that we're influenced by Western culture, we live in a colonised world, we um, have things like our reo and our tikanga often removed from our daily lives um, and we are often suffering the consequences of colonisation in ways that many people don't ever understand. While those things are more more clearer to grasp and clearer to see, is it something that people actually look within themselves and go, hang on, <laughs> there's also something deeper within myself around, specifically around my race and how my race has been influenced by another race and how I value myself as being influenced by how other races have put what they value, I suppose, what another race values. Mm, for sure, 100%. Um, one of the things that springs to mind as I'm listening to you um, is the degree in which race works to take away uh, that which I have wanted to understand about myself but didn't realise I was allowed to say it. So as a three-year-old, as a four-year-old, I knew that I was Māori. I also knew that I had brown skin and I knew that I was allowed to talk about my Māori identity but I also... Um, inherently knew that if I talked about my brown skin, that would be met with some kind of repercussion. And so I experienced a whole lifetime of living in what it was that I 
looked like without ever being able to express what that experience was. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, I believe that who I am in my brown skin straddles my cultural ethnic identity as a wahine Māori. And so what this work has done is enabled me to articulate more fully what that experience is and who it is that I want to be in the world, knowing the ways in which colonisation, white supremacy, um, settler colonialism and all of those um, and the and all of those systems of power that work to denigrate and oppress us, I understand more fully who I am in that context. And in understanding more fully who I am, I have really beautiful opportunities to reconfigure what it is that I want for my life. Mm. And uh, and in that understanding of who I am gets deeper all the time. So we've been in this work now for, I don't know, six, seven years, and I'm still learning more and more about just how internalised, you know, those, st- like unpacking all of those kind of um, beliefs that are not from an Indigenous perspective, that are not ancestral genius, that um, are foreign, um, and yet have been a deep part of myself and shaped me. Can you give me an example of, of something like that? Because I think a lot of us, we talked a little bit um, while we were doing the photo shoot, we talked a little bit about te reo Māori and what it means to think in Māori as opposed to thinking in English or thinking in, in te reo Pākehā, te ao Pākehā. Can you give me an example of how Western views, values have been entrenched into your identity mm-hmm. and how you're changing that by now understanding through this mahi how to actually reclaim who you are? Mm-hmm. I, I'd be happy to. Um, and what I'll do is actually bring my racial lens forward in answering the question. Um, what I... And I guess it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about growing up in central Auckland and knowing that when I go down to Huntley, um, that experience was a different one. Mm -hmm. And so um, as a brown-skinned Māori woman, urban Māori woman, when I went down to Huntley, I met with people who are um, a bit judgmental, a bit standoffish, this was when I was growing up, I perceived them to be judgmental and standoffish. There was, I recognised a kind of uh, barrier that existed between uh, the whānau that lived down there and who it is that I was. Mm. And so I believe that um, by virtue of internalising what it means to live in central Auckland and the white values that infiltrate every aspect of city life, Uh, how you dress, what you look like, how you need to speak, the type of English that is valued. Um, And, you know, all sorts of those, uh, all sorts of day-to-day... Cultural markers. Yeah, cultural Mm -hmm. markers. Uh, The food you eat. uh, You get my drift. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I remember experiencing... Uh, kind of like, oh, 
why are those people not why are those people being uh, stink to me why can't I form relationships with these people down here and that's because I knew I didn't know at the time that I represented something to them right that these that far no back down home are um and Trent were deeply involved in language revitalization and bringing Te Reo Māori um, into their schools and into their homes and being proficient in leading out in tikanga and um, um, working on the marae as an everyday and innate um, part of their reality, which wasn't mine. So when I went down there, I represented, um, I represented whiteness. Mm. I represented Western ways of being, doing and knowing, even though that wasn't my intention. And so part of coming to grips with that is now when I'm when I encounter that dynamic, which I still do, I know I don't have my backup about that anymore because I know that how I'm represented. I know that um, when people look at me, see me, hear me, that they might feel betrayed because uh, I despite me trying to dismantle the whiteness that lives inside of me, it's still represented. Um, and part of who it is that I am, and we yeah, and we have we have two battles. I think when we think about this, we have um, an external non-Maori lens looking at a Maori woman and uh, looking at the stereotype of a Maori woman and don't try and be better than you're supposed to be, and this is who you are because this is who society has said you are. And so you have that non-Maori lens looking at you as a Maori woman with its own judgments, and then you have a Maori lens looking at you, then saying, "Are you Maori enough? Mm-hmm. Do you do this to tick the box of being Maori enough? You're an urban Maori. Do you know your real? Do you have you visited your marae? Do you do the dishes when you come into the kitchen?" Those sorts of things, and you know, it's it's um, it can be very very difficult to to have to deal with the judgment from your own, as opposed to the judgment from the other. Because when the other, when the non Maori judges you, you just say, "Oh fuck you," <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's, that's my podcast. I can swear if I want, but um, <laughs> but really, it is. It's fuck you. Mm. But when a Maori judges you, it's a little bit like, am I enough? Mm. Mm. And you start to question. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, we say fuck you now as grown women mm. who've been on a journey. Um, but at the same time, when I think about the little brown girl inside, um, I didn't even know that I wasn't Maori enough. That consciousness didn't even come into my head until um, I went to uni. I'd finished high school in Brisbane and um, and I came home and it was around the same time um, that the that Tainui had received their first settlement and in the three years, only three years we'd been gone, suddenly it seemed like the revitalization had taken a new step up and I suddenly realized I wasn't the same as all those Maori. Mm. And that hit me when I was 18 years old. It was so weird. I'd spent my whole life um, trying to avoid the repercussions 
of being brown. Well, because when you were four years old, you wished for blonde hair and blue eyes. I did. I spent my whole life trying to mimic and try to... I was ridiculously goody-goody. I was high-achieving. I spent weeks and weekends and hours studying... And it wasn't who I was. I was like a loudmouth, feisty rebel who um, always had a heart for um, what was fair and just. And yet I was so deathly afraid of getting into trouble because on some level I knew that if I got in trouble with my brown skin as a Māori girl, then I'm going to be lumped and labelled as, you know, all of the deficit narratives Mm. assigned to other brown Māori girls. And so I kind of just acted white to avoid getting in trouble. And then 18 hit, I'm like, holy, man, I don't know any deal. I know where I'm from, but I don't know how to say where I'm from, you know, in my language. And I've spent my whole life on our marae, but I don't really know tikanga. And um, that coming into consciousness of what you don't know was, yeah, really eye-opening. Um, and has, in terms of the judgment from other Māori, you know, for the most part, I feel like that outside looking in and that inside looking in it has come from me most harshly. So my experiences with other Māori have largely been um, positive, embracing, um, supportive, um, affirming. Mm. And yet, whatever that thing is that sits in my head, the loud, noisy, white voice kind of sits in judgment. You're not Māori enough. You can't speak. And it's just noisy. I can shut it up. I can say fuck you to that part of me. Um, And, yeah. It's it, it, it's taken a different kind of muscle, and that that's also that pakia for karo. Eh? That's that judging of um, having to reach that level of enoughness. Yeah. When actually, the indigenous view, especially the Te Ao Maori view, is that is your birthright. There is no enoughness, and we've learnt this. Um, we've learnt this in a roundabout way. <laughs> that's becoming much clearer now through the pathway of Moko Kauai, mm. where um, Wahine Māori would feel they had to reach a certain level of something to be worthy. And actually, when we unpack it all, that there is no enough. It is your birthright, and it doesn't matter whether you have all of these other prerequisites that actually a Pākehā lens put on that. Right. Um, I wanted to ask, and, and I'm, I'm going to get, I feel like we're talking about some quite heavy things, but that are actually a little bit low. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to ask why this matters, because there are, there are lots of counter narratives to talking about race. Um, when we say black lives matter, we get the hashtag all lives matter. And when we say, um, you know, this is this is what who a Maori is and this is who an indigenous person is, we get the why do we have to distinguish the difference? Why does it matter? And so I wanna ask you both, why does it matter to discuss race and to discuss to discuss it quite distinctly that you are of this race and you are of this race and you should we should be talking about it in that sense, but why? 
Why can't we all just get along mm-hmm. and be the same and mm-hmm. not be distinctive about your colour of your skin and my colour of my skin? Mm. Uh, race matters because I believe that despite all of the amazing gains that Māori have made in our language revitalization and our cultural renaissance, our systemic social indicators continue to tell us that uh, Māori are suffering worse than non-Māori, specifically Pākehā. So for me, uh, race matters because, one, I can't take my skin off ever. I can't take my thick legs and my thick hair and my uh, freckles and uh, my beautifully rounded nose away And so what that offers me is an opportunity to explore in those instantaneous moments of interactions with other people the way in which our physical attributes are um, becoming a part of or are, are a part of what it is that we see, how it is that we're relating with each other and uh, how all of those things contribute to those social indicators. So my my deep belief is that race shouldn't matter, but it is socially significant. And so what does a more full conversation about race as it sits alongside all the beautiful things like ethnicity and culture, which is the stuff that I actually care about, which is the stuff that lives inside of me that I want to share, mm. but... Uh, Race, I believe, um, thieves us all of our ability to share in a share our humanity with one another, and that's why it matters. And for me, race matters because it's the thing that hasn't been talked about. And so, in my if I just use my personal experience of striving to get the top marks of being you know, a great student of being, having beautiful manners and totally well-behaved, whatever the fuck that means. Mm. I still didn't get the accolades, the status, the rewards that other people did. And until I understood what race was, that what we look like makes a difference, I wasn't able to kind of move to understanding or towards healing. What is the difference between race and ethnicity? For me, it's deeply complex and layered. (laughs) Um, And they have a relationship. But uh, at a real simple level, I start with race on the outside. I I start with what walks in the door, what you see first. Um, And I think about you know, who gets stopped at shops to have their bags checked and who gets pulled over by police when you don't know what ethnicity is and you can't tell. It's what walks in the door. Mm. Talking about race, ethnicity, skin colour, this is part of your mahi. So it's not just part of your lived experience as Indigenous women, it's part of the mahi that you do. We talk a lot in Aotearoa about decolonisation and there's whakaro that is um, also out there that it, when you centre decolonisation, you're still centering colonisation, that we should be 
centering indigenization. So removing the idea of decolonization and actually just going, how do we indigenize? And thinking of that, what is the mahi that you actually do out with community, with organizations? What is your day-to-day practical mahi? And how does that whakaro of either decolonization or indigenization feed into the the teachings that you leave with organizations? Mm. Cool question. Um, The day-to-day mahi is we train people to practice the tools of what is called the Courageous Conversation About Race Protocol. Uh, So as a racial equity educator, we uh, draw from the work of Glenn Singleton, who Hedia mentioned is an African-American man who developed this protocol 20-plus years ago from an Indigenous African perspective and further developed it from the ancient understandings of the Kemet people, uh, who are the ancient Egyptians, Mm -hmm. who understood... um, the way in which humanity works thousands and thousands of years ago, um, which has been uh, lost in, in the same way Matauranga Māori has been lost. And so the way in which we teach the tools is really, really practical. Um, and in terms of indigenization and decolonization. We start from wherever the people in the training room start from. So the protocol requires people to um, interrogate themselves um, before um, before anything else. And so if um, Māori people start from a place of indigenization, then that's where the conversation begins. And we practice using the t- protocol and the tools from that particular position. What I know is that in our quests for decolonization, uh, in our quest for indigenization, um, lots of people don't know what they don't know. So even in um, embedding Matauranga Māori into uh, educational programs, which is what I used to do, um, one of the blocks in being able to indigenize the academy was the inability of people to recognize how their own whiteness was Um, interfering or intervening in that aspiration. So I see it as um, as a kind of double-edged, as two-sided, that indigenization for me is necessary, appropriate, and where we want to get to, and it must sit alongside a constant um, praxis, reflection and practice of understanding how uh, we are each colonised and how those colonising dynamics are interfering in our ability to indigenise. Mm-hmm. So I see them as uh, two, two tasks in the decolonising agenda. I like how you framed that. I was thinking of it as a um, as kind of a process, you know, like there's a process of decolonisation that needs to happen kind of internally in order, I believe, to free up space for indigenization to kind of, yeah, shine through. Mm. I often refer to tapping into um, my unconscious ancestral knowledge. So I have, I'm like a beginner real speaker. I'm not confident at all, but I feel deeply grounded in um, cultural values of manaakitanga, of tika pono aroha and 
I bring those forward in my mahi and often refer to just being in tune with my ancestors and and just trusting in that process and trusting in the unknown and just um, kind of letting go, handing it over, I guess, at times. Mm. If people are wanting to check themselves, because the, these types of conversations also make us go, oh, it's my lived experience, mm. or how does the colour of my skin mm. affect my life? Um, what are some practical tools that people could use now, even just by listening to this corridor, that they could start thinking about in their own lives and the spaces that they are engaged in, whether that be home, kura, mahi. What are some of those things? We often start with um, trying to find our earliest experience of race. So that kind of points to when we realise that race is a thing and it helps us kind of grapple with what we learned race was or how it played out mm. um, in our first experience and where that pattern might have showed up, shown up since. And how that earliest experience informs our own racial socialisation. So it informs how we first begin to understand what race is. And so then it provides us an opportunity to further interrogate um, the sources, people, experiences, places, spaces where that underst initial understanding of race was perpetuated. And so in the spirit of praxis again, so practice and constant reflection, asking questions like how has my experience been shaped through race? How has my current opinion been informed by race? You know, we're coming up to, uh, it's an election year, and so... Oh, race is going to be on the cards. So one of the things <laughs> I'm saying is, you know, how have people's particular life's comforts informed their shortcuts in their political thinking? You know, unless, and how has race shaped that? Mm. You know, it was my 40th birthday last week, and... Um, Kat took me on a trip down memory lane and we revisited um, significant places that I, where we'd spent time growing up. And she asked me at each spot, what was it like to be a brown girl here? And mm. what do you remember about being a brown girl here? So, you know, walking down memory lane and deliberately bringing race forward, um, you know, I said before that my consciousness and learning about myself is always deepening and that brought up stuff that I hadn't really kind of um, uncovered yet. And so, yeah, that's a tip. Walk down memory lane. And Kat, there's something you ask your kids daily where you don't... Something I know about you. <laughs> <laughs> From my stalking. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something you ask your kids where you don't say, how was your day today when they get home from Kura? It was, how was your day as a brown boy today? Yeah, how was your day as a brown boy? How was your day as a Māori Pacific boy? Um, I ask... I try to normalise that question because it... Um, off affords a space where they tell me things I would otherwise not hear. Uh, so it's fascinating. Mm. It's fascinating because they talk to me about um, the different 
the most recent one of the most recent stories is um, my son contemplating and grappling with um, Maori children in his class. So he's in Rumaki, but they're all different colours. So he's he's saying to me, Mum, so and so looks Pakia, but they're not Pakia, and they can speak to their Maori, and they have whakapapa. and uh, then he's asking, but so and so has is really brown, and so just grappling with. Um, firstly, can you see that? Secondly, can you see it in a way that um, enables you to recognise that an experience might be different? Mm. And thirdly, then how are you in this, son? Where are you in this? What do you think about this? Um, does it matter? And it's, it's as my eight-year-old said to me the other day, when he was asking how my day was, I was uh, down in Pornike training, and he said, Mum, oh, um, how's Beyond Diversity going? Beyond Diversity is our two-day full immersion uh, training that we do. How's BD going, Mum? I was like, oh, it's going good. He goes, what do you do again? I said, <laughs> I, said I help people, um, teach people tools to talk about race and racism in their life. He goes, and I said, and we've got a predominantly Māori training room this time. And he goes, oh, well, how are they doing? I said, oh, well, some of them are feeling a little bit upset, some of them are ha, but frustrated, and some of them are really quite confused. And he goes, what are they confused about? And I said, I think they're confused because Māori, some Māori know that race is a thing, but they really don't want to know that it's a thing because it's mamai. And his words verbatim to me were, mum, tell them, it's so important. It's like, okay. Mm. Um, what, what, what's the goal with this mahi? Because sometimes it's 10 steps forward and 25 steps back, and sometimes it's three steps forward and only a half a step back. Um, and we know that race relations in Aotearoa has a long way to go. Um, I don't want to quote a tāne on this podcast, but one one Māori tāne um, did say, you know, New Zealand is racist as fuck. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who don't see that go, no, no, we're not. This is the land of the free and, and it's 100% green. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've got beautiful acknowledgements of these very privileged Māori people who get handouts all the time. Um, but what is what is the goal of your mahi and is it making a difference in Aotearoa? What, what is our race relations actually like from people who work in this system? So my goal is to change the world, like straight up. And I recognise that racism is not going anywhere. It's mm. been holding space for hundreds of years. Power and prejudice has held space for hundreds of years. And so it would be, I think, ignorant of me to expect that, you know, seven years in this mahi was going to make a huge dent in the system. Um, and absolutely, I believe everybody that we um, connect with in this mahi who has a better understanding of themselves as racial beings then walks a little bit differently in the world and um, some of them you know go down that decal path and do some hard mahi and unravel 
and try and knit themselves back together um, as they raise their racial consciousness. And, you know, others take a little bit longer to do that. Mm. Um, I believe the state of race relations in Aotearoa um, is presented as something better than it actually is. You know, after spending time in Australia working and living and hearing um, claims of how much better Māori have it, Mm. you know. And I'm like, actually, I could put our stats up against Aboriginal stats, up against African-American, Native American stats, and everybody's looks the same based on colour. And... So the fact that the narrative internationally that Aotearoa have their shit together on race makes my head spin. Um, mm. My goal, uh, I often say, one courageous conversation at a time, Kat. One courageous conversation at a time. So my goal is always to use my voice in a way that provides an opportunity for someone else to raise their own racial consciousness if they want. One of the biggest learnings in my work has been not to drag people to where I want or require them to be because that just doesn't work. Um, That's my belief. So how can I talk in a way which can be heard um, to the extent that people want to transform themselves? Uh, That's my goal to raise racial consciousness in every conversation that I have at home, at work, at the supermarket, at the shop yesterday. And the reality of that, while that is true, we can't drag people into consciousness, you know, that's not how it works, Mm. um, unfortunately. But the reality is, you know, as brown Pacific wahine, I feel a sense of urgency you know, for change. Mm. We've been um, hurting for too long and we continue to hurt. And so, yeah, there's a real cha- there's a real challenge there in our mahi. I believe that one courageous conversation at a time is the way that it has to be and it pisses me off that it can't happen faster. And is it... Is it just a white privilege, white supremacy versus colonised Māori kōrero? Because, you know, often we talk about white versus brown and we talk about privilege versus poverty. Do other races come into this kōrero or is it mainly a white versus brown kōrero that we have to have? In Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, I believe that the starting point for this conversation that honours our particular context and history must begin with Māori and non-Māori, specifically Pākehā. And I recognise that New Zealand is comprised of a whole diverse, racially diverse population. And so that's the that's the challenge. The challenge is how do we um, imagine and lead for a racially equitable Aotearoa New Zealand uh, under Te Tiriti o Waitangi? Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about Moana Jackson uh, earlier this year said New Zealand needs to have a race-based conversation about colonisation. And so the beginning for, of colonisation in this context was between Māori, who looked a particular way, and Pākehā, who looked a particular way. 
I also believe that um, people need to understand what it means to be a treaty partner. And so, and I believe everybody is a treaty partner mm. in, in Aotearoa. And that that conversation, um, you know, making a, a Māori Pākehā kind of relationship and or conversation means that people are allowed to kind of opt out of partnership under tutority. And so until people realise that you're in this too, you know, mm. um, and, you know, so you have a role and a place and, and um, you're connected, that's how we can widen the conversation. This is quite specialised mahi. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> totally. How did you two get to this point? What mahi did you do? What mahi did you do before this? Was it all leading in this direction, or was it quite of a roundabout up and down, turn the left, turn the right? Yeah. <laughs> did some of this kind of stuff beforehand? Uh, well, I started in. Well, you want the whole fuck up of my work? Like, I started like working in a jeans shop when I was <laughs> sixteen, and now I'm racial equity educated. No. Uh, with, and did a stint in higher education where I was a lecturer and then I moved into an institutional role um, overseeing the implementation of the Institute's Māori strategy and it was actually that point in my career that systemic racism really, I really felt the impact of systemic racism. And what is crazy about Māori-specific roles in mainstream institutions is that uh, the institution is recruiting and remunerating you to fight racism. Like, if you're trying to do Māori things in Māori ways in mainstream institutions, you are going to encounter systemic racism. Mm. And so it was that point in my career, um, working with well-intended, mostly non-Māori teaching staff, um, where I experienced uh huge systemic oppression uh, and after left actually got really sick actually my belief is that it was because of the racism that I was enduring on a day-to-day where I had no outlet for it and uh, I ended up getting brain swelling I went to was in a headache clinic for three or four months ended up putting on heaps of weight felt miserable I used to book like holidays once a year um, under the under the foolish belief that uh, my pay was uh, good enough to cope with the pain and I'll reward me and my whanau by going overseas. So, oh, man, years ago we were going here, there, and every, to be hiding everywhere. And uh, I had to have a really deep conversation with myself about um, the pain, the source of the pain and my own well-being and how can I like stay in the struggle towards racial equity in a way that enables me to enjoy the experience as well. I think that it's really important as we fight um, racism that we find moments to celebrate, to reimagine, to laugh, to, you know, cry, heal, to do all of that stuff. And so Courageous Conversations has enabled me to um, strike a healthy balance in the struggle. For me, um, I can't really pinpoint or extrapolate which is the personal journey and which is the professional journey. I feel like I've spent a whole lot of my life being an angry brown girl and um, trying really, really hard to keep it under wraps and mostly succeeding. But when I um, 
when I'm not, uh, like my life kind of falling apart. And um, so my professional journey uh, was really shaped by um, having my son at a really young age. I got pregnant and had him um, at the same time as I sat my last semester exams at uni. (laughs) And so um, all I'd ever wanted to be was a psychologist. And then I had this kid and I was 20 years old and I was like by myself and inherently I knew that I did not have capacity to hear other people's problems and hold them and help them um, and be a good mum. And so I stayed home for a year trying to figure out what it is I was going to do and then kind of just fell into a job. And I got bored all the time, but I thrived because, you know, I'm good at whiteness. And... um, and so I kind of just ended up having this um, amazing career of trying different things and working my way up and through an education organisation while my kid went to Puna at the same place and went to school across the road and it was five minutes down the road from my house. And so my career was really based on um, what I wanted for my kid and mm. um, being the best mama that I could be. And so... Luckily, the education institution I was at, I was able to connect and learn with and from loads of different Māori staff. There was a Māori network. I was able to kind of grow, try things. um, And I felt affirmed. And so I was able to kind of use my, um, my passion for learning and my position in the organisation to advocate for change and that just lit the inferno in my belly to um, continue to kind of advocate and challenge and um, I was no longer a suitable match for that (laughs) (laughs) organisation. I too was, um, our values were no longer aligned. Yeah, and we quit our jobs. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, we took up fun employment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to completely flip the script um, and talk about something which I'm assuming is not race related, but who knows, it could be. Um, <laughs> We'll make it. We we'll usually make it. find a way. <laughs> I am going to go back to your childhood because a crazy but true fact about you guys is that <laughs> you were trampoline champions. <laughs> yeah, you won't catch me in a leotard these days. <laughs> First of all, I didn't even know that trampolining was a sport. No. Um, but then I'm not very sports inclined, so... <laughs> I'm not surprised I don't know that. Um, But you were talking about psychology and it kind of got me thinking about hypnotherapy. I don't know why I, I don't know why, I don't know why I align psychology with hypnotherapy, but it's, you know, the, 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 the healing of the mind. (laughs) Um, Can you tell me, how did you get into championship trampolining Mm. and why were you hypnotised? <laughs> uh, we used to go down to the Mount Albert Rec and we were enrolled in gymnastics. And in the corner of the gym, there were four trampolines and there were a group of kids that just spent all of their time at the trampolines. And 
I wanted to be over at the trampolines. I did not want to be participating in the discipline and rigidity of gymnastics. <laughs> and so uh, we found out who the coach was and started trampolining. And I just fell in love with it. And it was a minority sport. I was hugely competitive. It was individual. And it was uh, the adrenaline rush of bouncing high and trying out flips and twists just rocked my world. So uh, that was my sport as I was growing up um, and I was good at it. So ended up in some competitive rep t- teams and did some travel and uh, part of the hypnotherapy um, came at the World Championships and the lead up to the World Championships, I'd had a really unfortunate, sad experience, um, completely bombing out in my routine um, at in Australia. Totally bombed out, cried, and it. I just got this big mental block. And so, in preparation for the Worlds, my mum, who was a um, extremely amazing ballerina of her time. She danced for the New Zealand Ballet Company and she was amazing. Um, Suggested to us that she'd take us to a sports hypnotist to help us with Mm. the pressure that comes with um, competing at that level. And so we had, you know, back in the day we had those tapes, they cassette tapes. So on one side was a relaxation So and she'd put that on as we went to bed. I don't think we ever lasted the whole side of that tape, awake, we would fall asleep. Yep. We yep. had um, positive affirmations, blue tack to our um, wardrobe doors to help us relax. And then on the other side of the tape, it was visual imagery um, helping us to imagine um, doing our tricks and our routine. Perfectly. Perfectly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I was a bit of a head case even back then. and um, You're not a head case. No, I just talked about having troubles with my head. Um, (laughs) And so I wasn't as exhilarated with all the twisting and flipping, but I I loved my coach and really, really wanted to be part of the team. I wasn't never quite as good at it as Kat. But um, I feel like (laughs) we got different things out of that tape. Yeah. And actually, just as I'm thinking about hypnotherapy and race, um, one of the because <laughs> you said that we wouldn't be able to tie it back, but I'm, I'm determined. Um, so one of the things that I say in training is that uh, before opening your mouth in a really hard conversation, remember that breathing is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And so when you're um, when I'm encountering a conversation with someone who has enacted something racist against me one of the things that I really try hard to do is breathe. And it reminds me that um, counting backwards. So counting backwards from five to one. And as you're counting backwards, imagining um, a, the state of relationship that you want with this person really helps with um, with going into a conversation with someone who's uh, just injured you through racism. Oh, that's cool. I don't use that. I don't do that imagination. I do the relaxation side. I do the... Like, just let go and walk through my body, just relaxing and relaxing and relaxing. Because, you know, these conversations are hard personally, let alone holding rooms full of people who are in various stages of, you know, coming into realisation about race and their own racial experiences. And so, yeah, being able to kind of, you know, 
brush that off and and you know get up and do it all again the relaxation stuff helps there we go we got there trampolining (laughs) (laughs) i totally i totally love that that just went directly straight back (laughs) (laughs) but it just shows that your mahi is you yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's just who you are. Yeah, some yeah. people would argue otherwise. Like, <laughs> there's some people who say, man, your posts on social media, that like, there are lots. <laughs> and I'm like, well, tell me when race is not operating. Yeah. Tell me when it's not operating. And then, you know, we can go there, but I haven't found a place. And mm. if the most confronting experience that they have is on our social media platforms, like, whoa, the privilege, you know, like, yeah. Mm. You talked earlier about your mama. Mm-hmm. Who are or who is an Indigenous wahine that has inspired you on your journey? Yeah, my mama is my superhero. She um, she probably wouldn't even know that because we have quite a, a volatile relationship at times. But um, she embodies what so many Māori women of her generation do, you know, that kind of stiff upper lip, that resilience, the um, get shit done. Um, And I am so aware of how much she sacrificed for us to be who we are today, like the millions of jobs she worked, going without, you know, like she just gave it all so that we could be the best that we could be in whatever it is that um, we dreamt. So, yeah, she's my superhero. Everything Mm. that I am is because of um, what she's instilled in me. And I just want 100% totoko that um, my mum, she has... I can only hope that one day I can walk in the world with the level of grace, divinity and integrity that she consistently walks in her unconditionality, unconditional love and um, support of me and my sissy and our whanau. Um, and I also want to mihi to um, te orongo nui Josie Keelan. So uh, Jose was the first wahine Māori uh, manager, leader, mentor that I ever had. She taught me about, um, she was the first person that really taught me about um, the ma- the marathon that exists in our collective struggle. Um, she always pushed me and continues to push me to do better for our people. Um, she always legitimated me when I wanted to say no to non-Māori. Um, she uh, despite describing herself as socially awkward, was always able to hold the intensity of my feelings about how colonised I was and am. Um, and in, even in that, she also maintained a really stern position in her politics and expectations of me. Um, she was open in sharing her experience of Ngā Tamatoa, um, like raw, real experiences. Um, and so taught me to value those who have been in the struggle longer than me. Um, And I think her biggest um, contribution for me was um, allowing me to be okay with not being at the same level of te reo Māori as my kids. So 
saying, reminding me that I've given my kids their birthright. Don't put, don't beat myself up for not having um, the deal uh, as much as what my kids have it at any particular time. So, yeah, Jose. Josie's amazing. She also affirmed me and my leadership and um, supported me on my journey. She's an amazing wahine. Yep. What is it like to be an Indigenous wahine today? Well, today I had a great day. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? It's funny, eh? Because sometimes I go, ah, imagine if I was a Pākehā woman, how, like, easy life would be, you know, swimming in the culture and waters of white privilege. And I just think there's so much lacking uh, like there's so much um, so much rich, richness that uh, that's missing. So for me, uh, how is it being an Indigenous wahine today? For me, it's exciting, it's loud, it's fun, it's um, full of emotion, it's dreamy, it's hard, and I wouldn't change it for nothing. Yeah. For me, being an Indigenous wahine is so exciting at the moment. I feel like we're at a time in history where um, the power uh, and all that it means to be wahine is um, just sitting, bubbling, like, and the potential is just like magic waiting to burst and um, to be young enough to be in that time and um, part of that movement is, like, freaking cool. Like, that's so cool. It's so exciting. Um, And, yeah, it's hard. It's hard um, bucking against deficit narratives. It's hard breaking through brown ceilings, it's hard finding a voice at tables, it's hard breaking trauma patterns, trauma cycles, ensuring they're not being passed on to our babies. Yeah. And who else is better poised than us to do it? Mm. You know, connected to all of our ancestral genius, all of our Indigenous wisdom, who else better than us? Mm. We've had some quite deep corridor um, that <laughs> some corridor that will make people think about themselves and think about their traumas and think about their patterns. Um, and I know that because it's made me think about that. <laughs> and um, it's been interesting engaging in this conversation because I knew what I was getting into in this corridor. <laughs> I was prepared. I was ready. Um, I knew what I was asking you and I kind of knew the answers I was going to get. <laughs> but it also has been quite confronting in just my sitting here thinking of your lived experience and my lived experience as wahine, indigenous wahine in Aotearoa. And... Um, I go back to that corridor 
of Euhedia talking about at, you know, four years old wanting to be blonde and blue-eyed. Mm. And I think about how my entire childhood, all I wanted to be was brown. Mm. And um, as I got older and uh, my husband and I have been together for 17 years <laughs> this year, um, and my husband is Tongan mm. and he is brown and my baby is brown. And I look at my baby and I think, oh, I'm so glad you are brown and you're not white like me. Mm. And it's a really interesting reverse focado mm. of me um, thinking and celebrating so much in her brownness and the and the colour of her skin. And I and I know that as a, a brown wahine, she's gonna face things that me as a fair skinned wahine wasn't didn't face, but I'm so happy that she is brown. And it's it's an interesting kind of um, whakaroid and it's come out of this conversation, me kind of just mm. into, and I know, I know this is not about me. Got a few. Sorry, I know this is not about me, but but um, just having these, these really interesting thoughts as we discuss race and discuss what it means to be of a certain skin tone and why and and feeling that sense of being enough or not enough. Mm. And I still think now as an adult who um, is of an age, (laughs) a cool age, age. that has threes in front of it and not twos, (laughs) that is of an age that um, even now I think of wahine who meet me, um, who are brown-skinned, who think I'm Pākehā, mm. before I open my mouth. Mm. As soon as I open my mouth, as soon as I open my mouth, they're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no, that girl's from the hood. Um, and how much that affects me, mm. that whakaro, that idea, and that um, I have people in my life who are either related to me or are in-laws to me, who make passing comments like, oh, white, because she's white, or that my my Pākehā cousin or my Pākehā-looking cousin or, oh, that's your white auntie. Mm. And how much that really deeply affects me. Mm. Um, and it's not until this conversation that I start going, oh. <laughs> Oh, that's a thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I only raise it not to bring my own story into this corridor, but because I am sure that this corridor is raising some of those feelings amongst people who are listening. Mm. And whether that be uh, your lived experience of being brown or my lived experience of being white Mm -hmm. Um, in skin colour, but not in Whakaaro, mm-hmm. not in, you know, not in all those thoughts I have in my hiningaro, mm. um, but what that might be in thinking about what it's like to be an Indigenous woman today mm. and how do we share in these experiences and come to some sort of space where we don't have to feel the need to be something else, that we can be comfortable in this, mm-hmm. and I know I'm not. Yeah, 
I can't know, I'm, I'm still not comfortable being a fair-skinned Māori who is yeah. so tuturu Māori. Race works in a way that it wants to divide us mm-hmm. by saying you're not enough because you you have white skin despite you feeling and being so Māori. And, you know, uh, for me, that I'm uh, not white enough, you know. So it's... Race as a construct is just so divisive and in that division it causes so much pain. So for me, when you can name what the experience is and share in that, there is opportunities in the conversation to connect, right? And so it's those points of connection that uh, enable us to grow our understanding and our consciousness more fully as opposed to those moments in the conversation that legitimate a, a, a disconnection. So, you know, you saying that you're white, I could disconnect, like, oh, no, well, we're different. Well, no, you know, no, there's a connection there in your experience and my experience um, as Indigenous wahine of different colours. Mm. My experience of this, you know, as the four-year-old who wished for blonde hair and blue eyes ended up with a baby with blonde hair and blue eyes who, when he was four, said, Mummy, why aren't I brown? Mm. And... At that point of my journey in motherhood and and in race, I guess, um, I didn't want him to feel separate. I wanted him to feel Māori and loved and connected and part of the whānau. And I just said, baby, you're brown on the inside, you're brown on the inside. And just affirmed him in, in his Māori tongue and in his whakapapa and in his identity. And, um, and then as my racial consciousness grew and my journey deepened you know um we had to revisit that conversation because you know as the white looking boy that hung out with only brown boys you know played rugby league and I got the white guy I got the white guy you know um and who was always offended and I'm like they're just describing what they see like you know what do you want Mm. them to say I got pink boots like come on now (laughs) And um, and then also kind of deepening the conversation to actually, baby, the way that you walk through the world is not the same as your brown mates. And so you have a role. You know, Kat talked about finding our way to connection. Um, once we kind of can just see and believe that we're different, his um, role as in his skin was to always be the mangai. He always had his friends back. He was the person that spoke to adults or police or, um, Mm. you know, uh, when 15 boys are walking down Queen Street and shopkeepers are frowning at them or they get stopped by security. He was the one who had to kind of have the conversation, show up in his white skin with his central Auckland English accent mm. and um, use his privilege. Use his privilege. Learn how to use his privilege, and so that too. There's mummy with that, right? Like he gets exposed to conversations because of his skin that you know people wouldn't say in front of obviously brown people, and so and his experience of not feeling Maori enough always has is something that he's spoken into a lot, and so. For me, just to reiterate, that um, once we can see and understand that we we want the same things, we're working towards the same outcomes, and um, fuck a papa trumps all, 
Mm. Um, but actually we have different roles because of how we show up in our skin. That's when I, we can deepen connections. Mm. Um, so beautiful segue from talking about our tamariki, who are the future. My last partai for you both is what is your hope for the future of Indigenous wahine? My hope is that we collectively can heal from and continue to dismantle those intergenerational colonial trauma cycles that continue to play out in our lived realities. And if the white, racist, patriarchal, capitalist... (laughs) Did I say racist? (laughs) Um, System isn't going to come to its demise anytime soon, that we can continue to um, strive towards our individual and collective aspirations in a way that doesn't compromise who it is that we want to be in the divinity of Papatuanuku in which we are located and uh, we do it in healthy, thriving, prosperous Fun, loud, and exciting ways. <laughs> <laughs> mine is like, yo, <laughs> mine is um, connected to some of those things. My hope um, for Indigenous Wahine is that we can thrive in all our brown girl magic um, and feel affirmed and heal. and change the world with love, with nurturing um, soul for uh, humanity and with a view to um, generations and generations ahead. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> Kia ora. Oh, man, yeah. That corridor took us places. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we're actually, it's it's now 7.30pm, so people who are listening to this won't actually know what time we're recording, but this is, it's the time of the night where these corridors just happen. Um, I just want to thank you both for not only sharing, um, not only taking us to some really confronting, conflicting, but beautiful places for us to think about these whakaaro. But also thank you both for your mahi, Mm -hmm. because the mahi that you do is benefiting all of us. Um, And the hope is that by doing the mahi that you do, our tamariki and our mokopuna come into a world where these courageous conversations have already happened mm. and are starting to influence and change the systems mm. that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that society will feel that they can have more of these courageous conversations and not shy away from them. Mm. And so on behalf of my uri, mm. <laughs> I do want to thank you both for this mahi because I know that it can be quite heavy mahi to carry um, and to be 
involved in the heaviness of these corridor every day uh, with people that are not always uh, <laughs> that are not always quite uh, receiving of such corridor nor are they uh, quite happy to be talking about I remember the last time someone said thank you for letting me know how racist I am <laughs> yes <laughs> so ngamahi kia kōrua ngamahi nunamahi 